If you don't know this about me yet, you might be shocked to find out. Pause for effect. Now, if you don't know this about me yet, you might be shocked to know that I am not a long-term planner. I'm not strong at long-term planning. Uh, Did you know that there are some pastors who are able to plan an entire year's worth of sermons at once? That's not me. <laughs> I, I am not able to do that. In case you're wondering, that is not me. Uh, I'm actually much better at making decisions on the fly in the moment. I think that was, that's a product of my upbringing. I, you know, in my very early years, we moved around. By the time I hit fifth grade, I had moved around like 11 different times. Right? And so I learned how to adapt and, and how to, to live on the fly and, and live in the moment, if you will. And for those of you who are cringing right now at the, the inability of long-term planning, I didn't say that I can't long-term plan. I'm just not strong at long-term planning. Um, I understand the necessity of, of having a plan. Um, and I just want to reassure you that it actually is a strength to be able to make decisions in the moment on the fly, and, and uh, it's also a strength to be able to long-term plan. Uh, you know, as we were coming to the end of the book of Judges, I didn't have a plan on where we were going next. I knew we were coming up to the end of it, and I'm going to let you into the pastor's closet here. Uh, the way this works for me and, and as I lead is, is Holy Spirit dependence. I spend time, especially as we come to the end of a book, I spend extra time seeking the Lord, saying, okay, where would you like to speak next? Where would you like me to lead next, Lord? I'm yours. Here I am, right? That kind of posture. So I don't come with a plan. I just come before the Lord, and I, and I seek his face, and I, and I spend extra time, especially as we get to the end of a, a series, and saying, okay, Lord, where would you like to lead us next? I'm yours. I'm your servant. And so I, as we were coming to the end of last year, we were wrapping up, coming towards what seemed to me towards the end of Galatians, and a new Advent was coming, and, and so I started spending extra time this way and praying. And the Lord just kind of brought two books to mind, and it turned out that one of them was for my own personal relationship with the Lord, and the other one was Galatians, which I'm very excited about. Uh, being able to work through with y'all. Uh, <laughs> and so there you got a little peek behind the curtain there. Um, so this morning we're going we're gonna to begin a new series in the book of Galatians. And uh, like I try to do anytime we start a new sermon series and a new book, I like to make sure we're all on the same page as far as the context goes. Right, we need to be very careful when we're reading the Word of God to not bring our cultural context into the Word. That's called eisegesis, right? And that can be very, very dangerous. We need to make sure that we understand the original context of God's Word and let God's Word speak to our lives. That's called exegesis. And so that is how I like to preach. I think that is the biblical way, the biblical approach of this. And so in order to understand the context, we have to answer some questions, okay? There's a game that we play in youth ministry that we've played a couple of times in, in my small group with my students and, and even before as a small group or as a youth group pastor called Who, What, When, Where, Why? 
And it's a really silly game, and it's a really fun game, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but don't worry, we're not playing the game this morning. Come February 24th, maybe we'll play the game, and I'll teach you how to play the game. It's really silly and funny, as the students are chuckling and, and know and understand why. Uh, you can even ask Darlene. Darlene's played it a couple times, and it is quite funny. <laughs> but in order to have a contextual understanding of, for the book of Galatians, we have to really address the who, what, when, where, why of this letter uh, so that we can all be on the same page. Um, and so on the back of your bulletin, uh, worship bulletin, there should be a lot of blank space. Okay? This is for you to take notes not just this week, but in any week that, I'm, that we're preaching and presenting God's word, that's a really great place for you to take notes. Um, there should be pencils in the back of the chairs in front of you uh, that would be available for you to take notes. Um, we're going to kind of go through these questions really quickly and then uh, to set the stage, and then we'll get into the scriptures. But I want to help us all be on the same page and and. By you having these who, what, when, where, why, this is going to help you as we get through the book of Galatians to always refer back to so that we're all in the same place, okay? Because, again, context is king. We need to allow God's word in the context it was written to speak to us and then apply it to our lives today. That being said, let me go ahead and pray for our time together in this study, and then uh, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, I thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, Lord, and every day for that matter, but I'm thankful for this day. I'm thankful for the opportunity with this people who are here to worship you, to gather in your name. I'm thankful for your church, your bride, Lord, and we're thankful for you, our King, our Lord, our Savior, the one who gave everything, even while we were sinners and rebels to the throne. You gave everything so that you might save us. Lord, we celebrated that through our time of communion together, Lord. I thank you for that. And Lord, as we begin this new series in this book of Galatians, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Not just our minds, but yes, yes, our minds, but not just our minds. Prepare our minds and our hearts, Lord. Because you, you don't just want our minds, you want our everything, You want our minds and our hearts, our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, the information wouldn't just transfer as head knowledge, but would actually make its way into our hearts to be transforming in our lives. So, Lord, we come before you, and we know that only you can do that. So, Lord, we need you this morning. To you be the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to that first question, who? Well, in this, we have two who's. Don't worry, I'm not going to Dr. Susia and, and do t- rhyming the whole morning. But we have two who's to answer. The first one would be the author. Who wrote the book of Galatians? Well, when you look at the very first word in the, in the, bio, in the book, it says Paul, an apostle. This is without debate among scholars. All of the scholars agree that Paul wrote this letter. Okay? No debate there. Then the question is, well, who is he writing to? The audience. Well, we see that in verse 2. 
says, the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. That's actually a typo on my screen there. That should say of Galatia, not in Galatia. And you might ask yourself, where? Galatia. You know, Galatia. I didn't know where Galatia was either. Galatia is modern-day Turkey. Okay? Now, there is some scholarly debate on exactly what part of Galatia Paul might be writing to. Um, so, and it really falls into two different camps. The first camp would be northern Galatia, which would, the argument there is that these are the ethnic, ethnic Galatians. The other camp is more of the southern part of Galatia, which in this time in history that Paul would have been writing this letter, there was a Roman province in the, that made up most of the southern part of Galatia and specifically would include the churches from Paul's very first missionary journey, and specifically Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia. Of which, if you still don't know where I'm talking, you've got a map that looks like this inside of your bulletin. So here's interaction time. Go ahead and grab this out. Okay. Go ahead and grab this map out, and on the top, way up top, write Acts 13.4 through 14.26. This is the area in the Bible in which you will find the evidence for this missionary journey. And on your own, I encourage you to go ahead and read that section of Scripture so that you know uh, what happened in these churches. But Paul, uh, along with some others, began in Antioch here in Syria. You can see the little star here. So in Antioch, make some kind of notation that that's where Paul starts. I like to use a star. Okay? Then the next, from Antioch, we see when we read this section of Scripture that he travels to Seleucia, which is right next door. From Seleucia, he travels to the island of Cyprus, to Salamis, crosses the island to Paphos. From Paphos, takes a boat, because planes weren't in, invented yet, and goes up to Perga. From there, he travels into Galatia, Antioch, and Pisidia. Okay? He's now in southern Galatia, which would have been the Roman province. Okay? From Antioch and Pisidia, he goes over to Iconium, down to Lystra, and over to Derby. Again, all of these events are recorded in these in the books of Acts here. In the book of Acts, excuse me. Each each of these locations, he's planting churches, he's raising up leaders, he's he's sharing the gospel and, and Gentiles, uh, which by the way, unless you're Jewish by blood, you're a Gentile, because Gentile simply means non-Jewish, right? So I'm not a betting man, but that's probably everybody in this room, okay? Um, so any non-Jewish person is a Gentile, and so that's this region, right, that we're talking about on this map. He spends time in each of these locations, planting churches, sharing the gospel, people, Gentiles being saved by the good news, he gets to Derby and then he backtracks. He goes from Derby back to Lystra. 
up to Iconium, over to Antioch and Pisidia, down to Perga, over to Italia, because it was a port town, and all the way back to Antioch where he began. This is Paul's first missionary journey as recorded in the book of Acts. The next question to answer is, well, when was this written? Well, if you take the camp that I am in, which would be that these are the churches, this, these are the Galatians in which Paul is writing to, this is most likely one of his very first letters that he wrote um, and would put the timing around 48 A.D., either right before or right after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The good news is, is that the exact dating of the letter does not impact our understanding of what Paul is saying in the letter. Okay? So it's either, he's either writing this letter to the Galatians either before or right after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Well, why does he write the letter? Well, he writes the letter to address false teaching that is already entering the churches. He hasn't even gotten back, and he's getting wind that the Galatians are being led astray with false teaching, specifically by a group called the Judaizers or the Circumcision Party. These were Jewish believers that were adding on to the gospel the requirement to become Jewish first in order to be saved, specifically through circumcision if you were a male. Now, as I was studying and trying to understand this a little bit more, uh, the thought is, is that these Judaizers believed in Jesus as the Messiah but they, they also had an understanding about God, that God was a God of the Jews, not a God of the nations. And so their mindset, their teaching was, well, if you really want to be saved, not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be a Jew because God's a God of the Jews. That was kind of the teaching. And so after Paul left the, the region and is on his way back, he catches wind that these Judaizers, the circumcision party, was starting to infiltrate the churches and bring this message that wasn't just trust Jesus. It was, well, not only do you have to believe in Jesus, you also have to become Jewish. Which the early church, the, the, the Galatians are so in love with being saved that they're like, Okay, if that's what it takes, they didn't know any better because they're babies in the Lord, right? And so these Gentile Christians in Galatia start believing this teaching. This error that was being taught. And if you go to Acts 15, you'll see that at the council, the Jerusalem council, Paul actually speaks against this because... That whole council is all set up about what do we require the Gentiles to do or not. Specifically, the circumcision party was making the case that, well, in order to be truly saved, they have to become Jewish through this act of circumcision. And then you have the apostles saying, no, 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 that's not true. Look at what God's already doing 
in these regions. It's by faith alone. And so that would date this letter either just prior to that meeting or just after that meeting. I tend to lean towards the dating of just before that meeting because I think, logically speaking, Paul would have had a much stronger argument to place that decision that was made in Acts 15 in this letter by saying, the, count, the elders at Jerusalem decided, you don't have to do this. <laughs> like, it would have been a very easy thing that would have, you know, case closed kind of argument that he could have included. Now, that's an argument from silence, and we can't just claim that, but I think logically it makes sense. Just because he doesn't make that claim doesn't mean it hasn't already been decided in Acts 15, um, but I think logically it would have helped his case, and so that's why I lean towards he was probably on his way to that council when he catches word and starts writing this, this letter to the Galatians. So what is Galatians all about? Well, in addition to addressing that false teaching, there are three prominent themes that we'll discover in our study in the book of Galatians. But the prominent theme, the overarching theme in the book is justification by faith alone. And for those of you who don't know what justification means, it's a, it's a legal term that specifically means that one is being declared or ruled righteous or right in the eyes of God. It's a legal term. It means that when a believer, when a sinner, makes that first declaration to the Lord that they're repenting of their, old, of their sinful ways and trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are justified before the Lord. They are legally just in God's eyes. The payment has been paid in full. It would be the idea of you getting pulled over for a speeding ticket and the penalty that, that speeding ticket's already paid for. You don't even have to go to court. They see, and it's they say, oh, okay, our records show that this is paid for. <laughs> yeah, right? The ones that are paid off, apparently. I don't know. Okay, obviously metaphors and analogies fall short. The idea here is that Paul, in this letter, is going to explain, uh, he's going to fight against the false teaching that anything else is required to be justified by the Lord. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need this. You don't need that. It's repentance and faith in the Lord, and you are saved justification. Now, as any good pastor does, I'm going to take a moment, a sidebar moment here, and talk about salvation. Salvation has three tenses in Scripture. We see in Scripture, you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. There are three tenses that Scripture uses for salvation. The past tense is justification. The current sense, the, the, the present tense of salvation is what we call sanctification, and there will be one day when we are glorified, when we will be saved. Justification, like I said, is the one-time declaration of being made righteous before God. It's a legal standing before God Almighty. That happens the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you repent of your sinful ways. That only happens once. 
from that point of surrender, that initial point of surrender, from that point forward, you are now in a process of sanctification, which is the immediate and ongoing transformational process of becoming more like Jesus and less like our sinful self. Sanctification is a process. It be, that process begins with our justification, but it is a process that begins there and continues until our glorification, the end result of our salvation, when either God calls us home through physical death in this world or Christ returns. We will be glorified and our salvation will be f- complete. So, Paul is really talking about salvation in his letter to the Galatians. Specifically, who can be saved, what it re- what, what's required for salvation, but specifically, this idea of being justified, that initial salvation. You with me? Yeah? Okay. Now that we have context of what's going on, let's get into the word, and we'll unpack this in two two pieces. First, the greeting, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Let's unpack that a little bit. Paul starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle. Now, depending on your faith background and, and any exposure you've had in the past, this, this word apostle might have different meanings. Let me clarify. There are two uses of the Greek word apostle in Scripture, which the Greek word is apostolos. It has a broad meaning, and it has a very narrow meaning. So let's unpack that. The literal translation is one who is sent. So apostolos literally means one who is sent. Simple, right? One who's sent. When our wives, guys, when our wives send us to the grocery store, we've been apostolosed, right? Right? That's, that's literally the word, means one who is sent. But like I said, it has a broad and a narrow definition or use, rather, in Scripture. The broad use of the word is used as a messenger. And in this sense... We are all messengers. In this sense, in this broad use of the word apostolos, which I would like to use the lowercase a for, means that we're all apostles in this sense because we are all sent in Christ to our own mission fields to advance the gospel. We're all given the Great Commission to go to our neighborhoods, to our workplace, our families, whatever the case may be, you have been sent to go. You have been apostolos. You've been sent as a messenger with the good news of the gospel. So in this sense, we're all apostles. But there is a much more narrow sense of this word, which we'll use the capital A for. And this was the office in the early church. As God was doing something new in the new covenant, he raised up apostles with authority specifically used as one who was directly commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus himself and had the authority from the risen Lord Jesus to found and govern the early church and to speak and write words of God. This narrow sense no longer exists today. There are no capital A apostles in this day. 
the canon of Scripture is closed. In the narrow, or excuse me, in the broad sense of apostle, we're all apostles. We're all sent with the good news, but we don't have the authority of the early apostles, the 12 apostles, to write scripture on behalf of God, have the authority in, of those things the way that they did in the early church when God was establishing this new covenant in the church. He continues on, now that we've addressed the apostle issue there, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice that he, he reminds and defines and clarifies where the authority comes from. He isn't being sent by the Pharisees, of which he once was. He's not being sent by some you know, group of men with authority. His authority comes directly from God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's where the apostleship comes from, is that authority. And so he says... Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In the book of Galatians, Paul actually makes this argument three different times, which scholars believe might be uh, evidence or is good evidence that maybe part of the Judaizers' message to the churches was that Paul didn't have the authority to set up the churches. And that's why Paul is addressing that over and over again through the letter. Okay? And then he ends that first verse there with, in, or second verse, with all the brothers who are with me. This is essentially the inclusion of the brothers who are with him adds strength to his argument that he is an apostle, one with authority from God himself, it's basically saying these brothers testify to this. Another legal term. Well, what are they testifying to? Well, it continues on in 3 through 5, which is basically, if we, if we unpack it, which I'm hoping to, is really the gospel. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the Strong's Concordance definition for this grace word, the Greek word charis. Quote, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, goodwill, loving kindness, favor. It keeps going. Of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian values. So when Paul writes, grace and peace to you, it comes with all of this understanding to the original readers. They would have they would have understood the context of this word and how it was being used. Just for time's sake, I'm going to keep moving. If you want these notes, let me know. I can get them for you, okay? The next word, he says, grace and peace to you. That peace word is the Greek word irene. We did this through the Advent season, but the, the Strong's 
definition for this is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. That's the peace that, that Paul is writing to them when he says grace and peace to you. He, remember, and this is huge because what is the message that the churches are hearing from these Judaizers? Oh, you, that's great you believe in Jesus, but you're not saved yet. You have to add on becoming a Jew. And Paul's saying, no, 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 grace and peace to you, assurance that it is through faith alone that you are saved. And when one soul understands this, there is no other peace in which man can have that supersedes this kind of peace. We try. We try when we're not feeling very peaceful. We try to find peace in the world and what the world says will give us peace. But only peace like this through our Father is worth having. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Not from the world, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Here he he says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every single person here is a sinner, myself included. Everybody in this world has fallen short. All of us. Are sinners. All of us fall short of the standard in which God demands. In the original language, the word sin is an archery term for missing the target. So when an archer would line up to shoot an arrow at a target and they would miss, they would say, sin, you've missed the mark. That's what it means. We've missed the mark that God has made for us. And it says here in Romans 3 that all of us have missed that mark. And all of us fall short of that glory that God demands. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of that falling short, the wages of sin, what we've earned by our sinfulness is death. That's what we deserve. All of us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus, knowing this, gave himself. What does that mean? It means that he paid the wages. He paid the cost of man's sinfulness, the debt that we have on us, he paid for you in his death and resurrection. Do you see the gospel being woven in this opening argument from Paul? He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, he paid the price, he paid the penalty that God demanded for every person that anyone who would believe in him shall be saved. This next one brought me to my knees in tears when I read this. Delivered, right? He said, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This word literally means to be plucked out or actively torn out, rescued. If all sinners deserve death, that means we were on a pathway towards hell. 
And in Jesus' death and resurrection, all who repent and believe and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus plucks off that path and puts us on a new one with a new destination. He actively tore us out of that old way to something new, something more glorious. And this word evil age simply just means the state of the world until Jesus comes back. My friends, the world is not getting better. It won't. It's not supposed to. We are in an evil age until Christ comes back. That's the glorious hope, is that he's going to come back. (laughs) Because the world's not ever going to be what it once was. America's not going to be what it once was. It's not supposed to. I've heard it said, you know, things are falling apart. No, they're falling into place. We just don't like it. We don't. We don't like the the place that they're falling into. But there's hope because they're falling in God's perfect plan for us. And we have a coming king who is coming. And so Paul says, grace and peace to you, assurance, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. This was all part of God the Father's plan wasn't an accident, wasn't a second, it wasn't plan B, it was plan A all along. And he finishes with, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. My friends, when we truly understand what God has done for us by plucking us off of the path we were destined to, and putting us on a new plan, assured of that. When we truly, personally understand that, we cannot help but give him glory forever and ever. You can't help it, because you understand what you were going to receive. You're no longer going to receive that. What other response ought we to have but to give him glory and glory forever. If we read into Revelations, we actually see that one day, that's what we're going to be doing. (laughs) For those who believe, one day there's coming a day where all we'll be doing is celebrating what the Lord has done and worshiping God most high and praising him and, and, and glorifying Jesus. There's coming a day where that's what we're going to be doing. And so Paul writes this opening section here to the, the, these Galatians who were being influenced by the Judaizers that what Paul presented to them wasn't the full gospel, but that there was something else. And he right away comes in, boom, punch, almost like punches them in the face and say, no, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Rest assured in the salvation in which you have received through Jesus Christ. And let it bring you peace. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I invite you to stand now, and we're going to sing the doxology. And we can leave this in, Matt. That's fine. Uh, It's open source, so we don't have to worry about copyright or anything like that. 
but I am going to mute myself because I don't want to be the only person that is being heard on the recording.